Hi everyone, it's Mo. I hope you're enjoying season three of Mobituaries. Now, if you know anything about me, you know that I'm pretty proud of my presidential memorabilia collection, my Benjamin Harrison campaign neckerchief, my ticket to the Andrew Johnson impeachment trial. I don't do first-tier presidential memorabilia. I'm all about the guys you can't remember were president. Which is why I was pretty shaken when years ago, it was brought to my attention that my giant Grover Cleveland bust might not actually be Grover Cleveland. Then, in the summer of 2020, I was invited on PBS's Antiques Roadshow. This was my chance to find out who this guy I'd been living with for over 20 years really was. And it all came to a head. A very big plaster head. This is a detective story with clues, suspects, and a whole bunch of historical connections, including Grover Cleveland's grandson. All of it documented on an episode of Detours, a podcast that reveals what happens to all that stuff on America's favorite antiques show. Here is that episode of Detours from GBH and PRX. When we set out to film in the summer of 2020, for the first time in the history of GBH's Antiques Roadshow, we couldn't go out on the road. It was a pandemic, after all. But we still had to make a TV show, so we tried something a little different, what we call Celebrity Edition. We went and visited the homes and or near the homes of celebrities to find out more about what they own. Here's my boss, Marsha Bemko. The promise that we made to get them to come to shoot with Roadshow is that we're here to answer the questions about whatever you're curious about. One of our stops, New York City, for a visit with humorist Mo Rocca. I was thrilled, and I knew exactly where I wanted this to go. And perfect for Roadshow, Mo had an object that he had questions about. I looked right at my bust of who I then thought was President Grover Cleveland. And I thought, you and me, baby, we are going to find out your worth. And, well, who you are. I'm Adam Monahan, a producer with GBH's Antiques Roadshow, and this is Detours. Today, Moe's Mystery Bust. Yeah, let's be clear. This is basically a big mound of plaster that I that I managed to balance on top of a column. Moe's object is a large bust of a stern-faced gentleman, painted in a coat of bronze. A chip on his face reveals plaster beneath the paint, but that doesn't detract from the air of importance he gives off. He sports a three-piece suit, a tie, and his defining feature, a large, bushy mustache. Moe remembers the day he came across the bust well. Here he describes it while filming our celebrity series. So cut to the summer of 2000, and I went to visit my friends Chris and Madeline on the North Fork of New York's Long Island. On a rainy afternoon, Chris took me into Greenport, nice town, and we saw a place called Capel Real Estate and Antiques. Not a typical combination, but we went inside, and that's where I saw him. 
we pass by this beautiful old building on a corner with gigantic windows. Mo's friend, Chris. And I'm pretty sure the bust was in the window. Um, so we pulled over and went inside. And they, they sold very little in the way of antiques. Like, I think there may have been a giant model ship and a couple of pots and this bust. And Mo was intrigued by the bust. And I, I think he started talking to the proprietor about it. And I don't think I was paying attention. And it really did not occur to me that he was going to buy this thing. There was a tag and it said Grover Cleveland, $150. And I thought, I just have to have him. To really get why Mo had to have a bust of Grover Cleveland, you first have to understand Mo's unique interest in presidential history. I'm particularly interested in the presidents that you can't remember were president. The guys between Lincoln and Teddy Roosevelt, they've got a lot of facial hair. A couple of them were knocked off, one by an anarchist, the other by... Among those guys is Grover Cleveland, who had the distinct honor of serving as the 22nd and 24th president of the United States. And Grover and Mo go way back. My attachment to Grover Cleveland goes back to 1997 when I got on a bus to visit Caldwell, New Jersey, and the birthplace of Grover Cleveland. The docent there, Sharon Barrell, she raised her family inside of the Grover Cleveland birthplace. I was so taken with the whole experience, I began going and visiting all these homes. And from there, Moe's love of lesser-known presidents only blossomed. So I bought a one-way ticket on U.S. Airways in 1997 to Indianapolis to visit the home of Benjamin Harrison, our 23rd president. He's sort of the kind of the meat in the Grover Cleveland sandwich. So a few years later, when Moe sees the bus tagged Grover Cleveland at the Long Island real estate slash antique shop, it was like bumping into an old friend and well worth the asking price of $150 to bring him home. I bought a pedestal because I couldn't have him on the floor. I mean, he'd been president for two non-consecutive terms. He doesn't belong on the floor. Um, And he became a part of my life. Since that fateful encounter over 20 years ago, Mo has amassed a collection of presidential memorabilia in his Greenwich Village apartment. What was sold to me as a cocktail clock commemorating the end of Prohibition in 1933, featuring FDR captaining the ship, if you will, a campaign neckerchief from the campaign of Benjamin Harrison and his running mate, Levi Morton, the Republican team that ran in 1888, an admission ticket to the Senate impeachment trial of our 17th president, Andrew Johnson, in April 1868. And the anchor to the collection, the Grover Cleveland that inspired it all, who overlooks the city from his perch where he's basked in domestic bliss for almost 15 years, without his authenticity ever coming into question. Cut to 2014, and the New York Times came to do a piece about my apartment, a short little feature. And I introduced them to Grover Cleveland. They took a picture of me next to Grover Cleveland. But then I got a call from the writer of the article, and she said, "Um, hey, we're just doing a little fact-checking. Just want to make sure that's Grover Cleveland. And I sort of reacted defensively. And I said, well, of course it is. Who else would it be? She said, okay, fine, fine. But then she called back the next day and she said, you know, there's some concern that this 
isn't Grover Cleveland. My editor has some questions about it. And I said, no, listen, I'm telling you the tag on it said Grover Cleveland back in 2000 when I bought it. So she said, uh, okay. And then she called back the next day again. And she said, this has gone way up the chain and there is concern at the highest levels that this is not Grover Cleveland. And she said, why don't we just call this a bust that Raka says is Grover Cleveland? I thought, all right, I can live with that, I guess. But the seed of doubt had been planted. Was he living with Grover Cleveland or with a stranger? And then I went to the Marshfield, Missouri Cherry Blossom Festival, um, where I met George Cleveland, the grandson of Grover Cleveland. And I thought, this is my chance once and for all to prove to myself and the New York Times that this is Grover Cleveland. I showed him a picture of the bust on my phone. He looked at it. He turned to me and he said, that's not my grandfather. When we come back, Roadshow teams up with Mo to figure out once and for all whose likeness Mo has been living with for the past 20 years. One of the most satisfying parts of my job is helping guests get answers to their burning questions about the objects they bring in. So, of course, when Mo agreed to be on the show, I was eager to make good on our promise to find out who the Grover Cleveland bust was, if not Grover Cleveland. To do that, I asked Mo to meet me at Lillian Nassau Gallery in New York to visit with appraiser Eric Silver. Mo pulled up for the appraisal, bust in tow on a little red wagon, secured by suspenders, no less. So, Mo, what did you bring me today? Well, I brought you Grover Cleveland, or a bust of someone who I thought was Grover Cleveland. Thank you very much. So the piece has quite a bit of quality and has a presence, so it was done by a professional artist. It's not the work of an amateur. I don't know if it's American. It could be French, Italian. If so, we just don't know. I mean, I don't know if he looks like any particular nationality, but there's no, no way of knowing, and that's going to make the search that much more difficult. Oh, okay. Oh, so you don't know who it is? I don't know. I wish I did. Uh, um, and, you know, and I was trying, I tried to look up the artist, you know, see what he, you know, who he was, and I just, uh, I, come, I didn't come up with anything. So there's just no way of knowing. Mo took the news graciously, especially when Eric suggested a way forward. If you expose it more, somebody might recognize it. I mean, that's, that's the remote possibility. So what you're so, saying is there could be a sequel episode. Right, exactly, exactly. Great. Right, I mean, you can include it in the bottom of your emails. You can have a little photo of him and, uh, you know, ask people if they know who this person is. So um, is this where we have a lower third graphic that says, if you know who this is, write to <laughs> exactly. Eric at AntiquesRoadShow.com. Right, Exactly. And we'll solve it because millions of people watch Antiques Roadshow, so you have, a, you have a great chance. Maybe someone could pinpoint that exceptionally bushy mustache, or maybe they'd notice the little clues the sculptor left behind. We see his first initials and we see a date, and then we see his first three letters of his last name. The name of the artist would no doubt be a step in the right direction. On the side of the bust are the letters P and S, followed by A, B, B. And right underneath the letters is a date, 1921. And then it disappears. The thing is about that little insert on Eric is that Eric happens to be one of the best generalists we have. Again, my boss, Marsha Bemko. When he told you, Adam, 
that he couldn't figure it out, our hearts sank because it was like, oh no, if he if Eric can't do it, we might be in a tough spot here, yeah. When the episode aired in May of 2021, we put out a call for leads, and our viewers were quick to share their theories. Perhaps it was Cecil John Rhodes, founder of De Beers, The Diamond Company, and the Rhodes Scholarship, William Faulkner and Mark Twain, and even John Ringling of Ringling Brothers Circus, all mustachioed, but none checked out as our guy. So we were watching, and I like a challenge. Two people weren't giving up yet, and they weren't the random history buffs we thought might write in. For these viewers, Moe's not Grover Cleveland bust was more personal. I worked on his podcast. I was connected to him through a mutual friend. Megan Marcus was a producer from Moe's podcast, Mobituaries. He once referred to her as all of Agatha Christie's detectives in one. When you guys couldn't figure it out, I love to get to the bottom of things. And a knack for sleuthing runs in the family. So Megan's sister Zoe got on the case as well. I mean, the first thing that we started working off of was the crowdsourcing that existed right after. And there was a name that came up on Twitter and Zoe went to town on this. Yeah, I, th- I went off to town. Ta- I went to town in the wrong direction. Here's Zoe. But I saw someone had said, oh, you know who it is? It's Benjamin Barker Odell, who was a governor of New York. That's Benjamin Barker Odell Jr., governor of New York from 1901 to 1904. Not to be confused with his father, Benjamin Barker Odell Sr., who also held public office. It's plausible both had portrait bus made. But Odell Sr. died five years before Moe's bus was made, so he's out. His son, on the other hand, lived until 1926, and he did have a mustache. And I think they had a photo, and I was like, you know what? It does look like that, which, by the way... A lot of men with a mustache at that era, like, they're all going to kind of look like that. So that was like, that, that's got to be him. To be fair, Benjamin Barker Odell Jr.'s mustache looks to be about the same density as Arbus. But Megan wasn't fully convinced. I looked at the photo. He looked too skinny. Like, this was a heftier... I thought it was artistic license that, maybe you know, they were just, uh, you know... <laughs> well, it's hard because, like, all, all, the mustache thing is deceptive. So... I was doubting it, but I had nothing else to go off of. And then somebody tweets out with the the sculptor's name. That name came from viewer Mark McCarran. It might have been a message that flashed up on the screen that said, help Mo Rocca identify the sculpture. And I think it directed me to a Twitter site. I, I don't remember exactly. But, you know, I got out my device and I started frantically trying to uh, connect Mark McCarran is the executive director of the Historical Society in Torrington, Connecticut, and he's likely the only person watching that night, possibly the only person, period, for whom P.S.A.B.B. rang a bell. When Mo was visiting the appraiser, I think the appraiser said, well, this is obviously a uh, professional sculpture, but, uh, you know, I can't make out the signature and it's not somebody I'm familiar with. And at that point, the camera zoomed in on the sculpture and I immediately recognized it as Paolo S. Sabate because he worked in Torrington for many, many decades. And we have a pretty good collection of his work and his, he signed everything. Mark revealed just enough new information for Megan to make some progress. 
Because remember, the thinking at that point is that it's Benjamin Barker, Odell. So I'm trying to connect Odell with Abate, not finding any connection at all. So then I just do, this is my usual trick. I go on newspapers.com and I just put in the sculptor's name and bust and I give a time period. We knew it was 1921. So I'm like, let me do a little bit before and a little bit after. So the first hit that comes up on newspapers.com is from March 24th, 1925, the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. And there is a photo of this exact bust. And it says, a bust portrait of police commissioner Richard E. Enright has just been completed in bronze by Paolo S. Abate. The bust is of heroic size and will be presented to the commissioner sometime during the summer. Its final resting place has not been decided upon. Mr. Abate is well known in congregational circles in Brooklyn, where he is in charge of the Italian Church of the Redeemer, Clinton and Carroll Streets. I mean, there's your proof. Of course, Megan and Zoe were communicating every development to Mo. It really was wild to see that sculpture, which is in my apartment and has been with me for so long, in an archival photo. Um, because I would come to believe that he just sort of, via spontaneous generation, kind of was born in that shop on the North Fork of Long Island where I bought him. I mean, I'd, I'd given up even imagining him in other settings. But to see him in this setting with the sculptor um, was really exciting. It was, it was kind of thrilling that made the hairs in the back of my neck stand up. So we got our full circle moment, the satisfying answer we were all craving and a name to the face. Not Grover Cleveland, but Richard E. Enright, a man I had never heard of. But I did find someone who had. So my name is Larry Sullivan, and I'm Professor Emeritus, and also I just retired as an associate dean, chief librarian, and professor of criminal justice from the John Jay College of Criminal Justice. The Lloyd Seeley Library at John Jay College of Criminal Justice is home to an archive of Richard E. Enright materials, and it's only a few miles from Moe's place. Now, who, who was Richard E. Enright? Enright was the first police commissioner that came to the racks. A 25-year-old Enright joined the NYPD in 1896, eventually becoming the first officer to rise through the ranks from lieutenant to police commissioner in 1918 and serving through 1925 when he retired. If you look at the list of the, the years of New York police commissioners, she was one of the longest lasting. So with, the, with our bus, with Mo Rocca's bust having the year 1921 inscribed on it, can you just paint the picture of what was going on in New York City in the 20s? The 20s in New York was just totally freewheeling. The speakeasies all over the place, the crooked politicians, crooked police, and he had to deal with this. And that's probably one of his, uh, you know, his legacies. I guess he was honest. Which, as Larry pointed out, was not a typical quality of Prohibition-era police officers. I mean, most of them would take payoffs. Two years into Enright's career as commissioner, the National Prohibition Act took effect. Enright, who was known for not tolerating graft, cracked down on organized crime that became rampant during this period. And later, when the police came under criticism for ineffectively enforcing the National Prohibition Act, Enright made the controversial decision to bring charges against members of the force. But that wasn't all Enright is remembered for. 
And there are maybe two or three points that stand out. One is, in 1922, he hosted the International Conference for Police Chiefs. This was the first time such a conference had been held in the U.S. And that led the next year to Interpol in 1923. Interpol is the organization that coordinates between local police departments in countries all over the world. And its founding can be traced back to Enright. And also, he was a great advocate of fingerprinting. Fingerprint identification for criminal investigation had only just been introduced in Europe by the time Enright joined the police force in the 1890s. But it didn't take long for the novel system to spread internationally. And by 1903, New York state prisons were using the technique for criminal record purposes. Enright envisioned fingerprints resolving identity questions of all kinds, not just within the context of crime. In 1925, Enright wrote an article for Scientific American titled, Everybody Should Be Fingerprinted, where he advocated for a universal system of fingerprinting. Early into retirement, Enright dabbled in fiction writing, publishing his first book, Vultures of the Dark, a detective story based on his own experiences in the NYPD. And although his career as a crime novelist didn't take off commercially, he did receive high praise from a fellow law enforcement official turned writer, William J. Flynn, who described Enright as a wholly new writer whose prolific brain can evolve and depict fresh, sparkling detective situations. While we were learning of Enright's foray into crime fiction, Megan and Mo were doing some research of their own. Well, Megan Marcus ended up sending me an article about his descendant becoming a cop on Long Island, I think, uh, the first um, since Richard Enright in that family to do so. Um, so I thought that was pretty cool. And I thought, well, we could keep this thing going if I introduce this young cop to the uh, to the bust. Um, and of course, I was pleased to find out that he was a particularly celebrated, esteemed chief of police during Prohibition, a time when, of course, as anyone who's seen The Untouchables, the movie or the TV show can tell you, was a time of uh, a lot of crime. So I, I'm happy to have him in my home. I'm glad we were able to solve the mystery for Mo at yeah, the end of the day. Yeah, me too. Like, I can't even believe this is the most unsatisfying appraisal that we might have done. Like, Listen, sometimes stuff like this happens. He was such a good sport about us failing to answer the question that day. We don't have all the answers. We have 99% of them, but um, sometimes we don't. I love that this one was such a group effort to get to the answer. I know love is not a walk in the park. It's a Tours is a production of GBH in Boston and PRX. This episode was written and produced by Isabel Hibbard. Our editor is Galen Beebe. Our senior producer and sound designer is Ian Koss. 
Jocelyn Gonzalez is the director of PRX Productions. Devin Maverick Robbins is the managing producer of podcasts for GBH. And Marsha Bemko is the executive producer of Detours. I'm your host and co-executive producer, Adam Monahan. Our theme music is Once in a Century Storm by Will Daly from the album National Throat. Thank you all for listening. Have a good one. GBH. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode from Season 2 of Detours from GBH and PRX. We'll be back soon with new episodes of Mobituaries, available on Amazon Music or wherever you get your podcasts.